Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 16 of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison. I'm a naturopathic physician with over 20 years of experience supporting folks with mental and neurological health concerns live healthy lives. And today I have a confession. I get migraine attacks. And I have since my 20s. Fortunately for me, they are generally manageable. And they typically only grab hold of my life for one to two days a month. And I have lots of tools, just given what I do and working with folks with neurological health problems. This definitely is in that basket of health problems. And some of my tools are pretty ordinary, like going to bed. (laughs) Uh, Fortunately, that works a lot. And so I don't think a ton about migraine in the sense that it doesn't take up a huge part of my life. But I know for some folks in this world, and I see them in my clinical practice, it can dominate your life. Migraine is a extremely common and also debilitating phenomena. And I think we underestimate that when people report that they experience migraine. I know personally that I have made lifestyle changes in response to being someone who experiences migraine and migraine attacks. And today what I thought I would do is dive into what a migraine is, some of the interesting and unusual phenomena of migraines, just to get you into the universe of migraine. Chances are you know someone or have a loved one that is experiencing migraine on the regular, or if you have migraines, understanding the current science or the current understanding of what a migraine is and is not is helpful in starting to manage your situation or manage, help someone else manage their migraine attacks. But also then, this is a part one of two-part series here. So part two, we'll get into lifestyle and some other really surprising interventions that sometimes create fairly good outcomes for people. So we'll talk a bit about some of the data around those things. But today I want you to get into migraine world, what it's like, what people with migraine experience, and some of the weird and kind of cool stuff. Cool in a fascinating, nerdy way, but cool (laughs) Um, if you like nerdy things. Things about migraine, because migraine is not all in someone's head. Migraine is a phenomenon. So because, you know, I'm in healthcare, I get the occasional migraine. I help people with migraines. You would think that I was aware of all the ways that migraines can present and had that pretty well understood. And if you thought that, you would be wrong. To this day, migraine never ceases to surprise me. It's not unusual to be sitting with a patient who's describing a somewhat odd or novel symptom, neurological symptom, and wonder, hmm, maybe this is migranous phenomena. And folks out there in healthcare know what I mean, because the symptoms can be really strange and involve so many different systems. The symptoms can be strange and involve anything from tinnitus to dizziness to stomach pain, vomiting, 
unilateral weakness and even transient paralysis. Fugue states, weird stuff. I wouldn't believe anyone who says they have migraine sorted or they have a fail-safe way to treat it because we just simply don't. We don't. There's a lot of options for care, but this is known to be a complex care situation, especially for the folks who are experiencing chronic migraine or some of the more unusual presentations. So if you're out there struggling, the science world knows you're out there, clinicians know you're out there, and there's a lot of work going in to try to figure this out. It's complex and common. 12 to 15% of the general population experience migraine worldwide. There was one piece of data I looked at that said 1 billion people in the world experience migraine. That's a lot of the world's population. And for folks in their 30s, 24% of women and transgender women will have migraine. It is second only to lower back pain worldwide among diseases ranked based on the numbers of years of life that the person will live with a disability. That's striking because lower back pain, as we know, is very common and creates a lot of debility in the world. Again, as I mentioned, it's more often experienced by women and symptoms can change based on age, stage of life, hormones, even stress. And one of the hallmark symptoms, which will be very surprising to you, myth-busting central here, you do not have to have a headache to experience a migraine attack. When we hear migraine, we think headache, but that's actually just part of the problem and not everyone gets a headache. So the fact that migraine is not simply a headache really surprises people. So sometimes when looking at children, for instance, they might have a mild headache associated with this frequent recurrent severe abdominal pain with vomiting, and that is an abdominal migraine or could be an abdominal migraine. They might have light sensitivity to go with that. So sometimes we are looking for clinical clues that give us a little window into, okay, is this person experiencing a migraine? But in children, the phenomena can get quite unusual, and adults or children do not have to have a headache associated with them. So what we think of as the headache, which is usually people use terms like, I've got a migraine, they mean that they've got a headache, or, you know, I'm having migraines, people will think of the headache, but actually, it's just one part of the whole phenomena. And it's best to think of migraine as recurrent episodes of migraine attacks. So we get out of this thinking that it has to have a headache, or it has to have a certain symptom for it to be migraine. We have to think broadly whenever we're working with migraine, or if you think you have migraine phenomena in your life, it is good to hold lightly to the criteria because people present more with a constellation of some of the symptoms versus every single symptom. So when we understand migraine as more than a headache, as I mentioned, it really does broaden our diagnostic lens and it allows us to capture migraine more often. One of the big problems with migraine is that it gets missed by medical practitioners often. And many people will be told many times that they do not have migraine headache when indeed they do once they see a headache specialist and get properly diagnosed. And that's important because, of course, if you have diagnosis of migraine, then you have access to different medications or treatment options. It also helps people with migraine, I think, understand the full breadth of the condition, it helps them with self-compassion. Because when you start to realize that 
It's not just a headache. There's a whole other host of things going on. That opens up the possibility for basically for permission to see the whole picture and understand and be more self-compassionate towards oneself when you're having these additional struggles that come with migraines. I want to start with a typical migraine attack, what it looks like. And it's made up of four distinct phases. And these phases or stages are really important to understand if you have migraine, and you'll get what I mean in just a second here. So prodrome, stage one is prodrome. And it can last for a few hours. It can last for up to three days before the headache occurs. So prodrome can look like a bunch of things. Some people will find that they get really thirsty. They need to drink a lot of water. They urinate a lot. Some people get food cravings in this time period. Pay attention to that. We're going to come back to that. Irritability can be a factor. Feelings of depression, excessive yawning. And then, of course, things that you might think more of related to migraine, like sensitivity to light or sound, fatigue, muscle stiffness, difficulty concentrating. And some people even have difficulty with speaking or reading and nausea and insomnia and neck pain. So that prodrome, just imagine, that can last up to a few days. So already we have one or two days here of potential symptoms, but may only be a few hours for other folks. My personal experience, I do get a lot of the um, thirst. One thing that's not mentioned here, but that I do get is chills. So thirst and chills are my personal experience, which also highlights that there are things I'm not mentioning here. I've seen other folks refer to chills as a symptom of migraine prodrome. And then you can have an aura as stage two or the second phase of a migraine. Really important to know this next sentence. You do not have to have an aura to have a migraine. And in fact, only 25% of people with migraine experience the aura. This is a common misconception in the population that if you don't have the squiggly lines or vision changes, that you don't have migraine. Not true. It's not required for the diagnosis, just like the headache is not required for the diagnosis. It's a feature, and it's one of the more common features, but it's not required to be diagnosed with migraine phenomena. So auras last between 5 and 60 minutes, and the most common ones are visual disturbances, the things that people will describe as Loss of vision because of bright, sparkly, squiggly lines in one of their visual fields. The medical term for this is, is scintillating scotomas. Scintillating scotomas might be the best phrase in medicine. But there can be other things like temporary loss of sight completely. There can be numbness and tingling on a part of the body. So people will have a few different things that might give them a heads up that this is coming, something's coming. And then the headache arrives. So four to 72 hours in duration, and it has lots of variable presentations, throbbing or ice pick or burning. It can be unilateral, but it can also be bilateral. It doesn't have to be unilateral to be a migraine headache. And it comes typically with sensory sensitivity to light or sound or smells, touch. There can be nausea and vomiting, uh, giddiness, difficulty with sleeping, neck pain and stiffness. So again, a variable presentation, 
and can last a variable amount of time, so four to 72 hours. So if you're keeping track at home, we're at stage three, we've got up to a couple days for prodrome. We have 50 to 60 minutes for aura and up to three days for the headache. So we're already kind of getting close to a week here of time. Just to give you a sense of people who have really severe migraine can be managing it for quite a while each time it happens. Then there's the postrome. So this is sometimes described by people with migraine as a hangover-like experience. And this can last for up to 24 to 48 hours and includes things like troubles with concentration, fatigue, numbness and tingling. Some people will report feelings of depression. Other people will report feelings of euphoria. And then there can be problems with comprehending. So it can affect that person's ability to function at work or school. So you can see that it's not surprising that for some folks, their full migraine attack lasts or takes up the majority of a week. Doesn't mean that they're necessarily missing work or school for that whole week, but it is something they can be managing for that whole time. And the degree of debility can be pretty significant for some folks. There's also a phenomena for some folks with migraine called the interictal state. The interictal state means the period between episodes. And we use that term also in epilepsy, the period between or after a seizure. So essentially, these are symptoms that can occur for people with migraine that are between the attacks, but that are associated with having migraine. So the most common one that we think about, and that is quite concerning, is depression. And some people will have sensory sensitivity that continues or that is persistent for them. And these can be rather confusing because they're not attached discreetly in time to a headache. And so folks will often not think that they're related to the migraine that they experience from time to time, but it can be associated with those things. And depression is a really strong and common comorbid condition for people with migraine. And we know that people with migraine need to be screened for depression because they're so much more likely to have it. And the consequences of migraine plus depression can be more significant than either alone. So you might be surprised by a few things that I just mentioned about just the typical migraine attack. But another thing that surprises me is the range of presentations that we can see. There is such a range of presentation. And I'm mentioning this for clinicians, but I'm also mentioning this for patients out there. If you suspect that you have migraine, but you don't fit that criteria that I just mentioned, you might still want to go see a doctor if you have other things that are similar to some of these phenomena. I've been leaving my favorite one till last here on the list, but there's some other types of aura, for instance, that people can get where they might have a, actually a language aura where they are unable to find words or their speech becomes very slow, slurred, and difficult. They might seem like they're impaired. There's been some pretty uh, well-shared videos of various news people who started to have a language aura on air when they were reporting the news and what comes out of their mouth can even be gobbledygook. Motor aura. So this is a weakness on one side of the body. This is something that I experience a little bit myself, which is this feeling of just that one side of the body is not working well. But that weakness can be as bad as paralysis. That's really rare. In general, motor aura is, is pretty rare. You can get aura, as mentioned, without a headache. This is fairly common. So about 38 to 40% of people will report this who have migraine, so that they don't always get a headache when they get an aura. The aura 
is often, in this case, the visual aura. So people will have the same symptoms, like the scintillating scotomas, but not get a headache to follow that. Just sometimes it just doesn't follow the script. Can be scary for people who've never had a migraine headache before, and their first presentation of migraine is a aura without a headache because they won't be able to make sense of it as easily as if it was followed by a headache because the narrative of that is really well known in the popular world. So sometimes when people come in and they tell me this scary symptom, I know what it most likely is, but they would never have thought of it. And they might be worried there's something wrong with their eyes or they have a brain tumor. I've seen lots of really scary stories attached to aura without headache. Migraine with brainstem aura can look like vertigo and bringing in the ears and double vision and difficulty with coordination, even lower levels of consciousness, which when you see that in someone, it would take a while for a clinician to realize that this is migraine. And then there's things like vestibular migraine where people get episodic vertigo. So their main symptom of their migraine is dizziness and the sensation that the world is spinning. Very disabling when that happens because they often can't function much at all while the episode is going on. There's also a tendency in women to have what gets called a menstrual migraine. It's also been called a ketaminal migraine. I'm not sure how to pronounce that word. Or hormonal migraine. So it has a few different names. This one's a pretty common to see in clinical practice where the migraine occurs close to the onset of the period or during the first few days of the period in someone who's cycling. This particular phenomena often gets figured out when we're doing cycle tracking. You can have more than just menstrual migraine. So you can have menstrual migraine and other migraine as well. So sometimes people will notice that there are headaches that are pretty reliable around their period time, but then they're getting migraine attacks outside of that time as well that we can't explain by hormones. The cool thing is that if we do discover that there are these menstrual migraines, we have some tools specific for that time period that are kind of cool. And then abdominal migraine, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, which is in children, we can see in adults, but it's more commonly seen in children where it's stomach pain, really bad stomach pain, can be associated with nausea, vomiting, light sensitivity, or something called cyclical vomiting syndrome, which is kind of a migraine-adjacent problem that can come up for people. And, you know, a lot of kids have stomach pain. And it can be hard to get to the point where you realize that that stomach pain is actually a migraine phenomenon in that child. The things that would get you thinking about it would certainly be if, if one or both parents have migraine. And then this is my favorite one. I left it till last. I have recently had someone report that they had this. It's the first time in 23 years of clinical practice. Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which is more was seen in children. Uh, it is exactly what you might think it would be. So really aptly named. What happens for these children is that they are having hallucinations and bizarre perception distortions. Their time sense gets impaired. And they typically are not frightened and can really describe the experience very clearly. So they don't have any amnesia about the experience. So they experience it, they remember it, and they're not frightened by it, which seems to be a fascinating part of, again, migraine phenomena. So they have this experience that some objects will appear too small. Some close objects will appear like they're really far away. And objects will seem either too large 
or have a distorted shape. So exactly what you might imagine Alice was seeing in Alice in Wonderland. And I love the naming of that. So uh, it's an intersection between literary, the literary world and the medical world. So what the heck's going on? You know, we've got these bizarre symptoms. We also have a cluster, sort of a, a constellation of typicality. So things that we know are likely to be present that help us understand whether or not this person is likely having a migranous phenomena. Some of the things that I clinically will really lean on are the light noise sensitivity or the degree of fatigue that person experiences during and post-drome, or if they just, they know it's coming and there's signals that tell them it's coming. Those things can give us a bit of a heads up as to what might be going on. So really understanding the narrative of that person's experience with a headache or abdominal pain or whatever symptom they're coming in with that might be migranous. That narrative tells us the story. And in the narrative, you can sometimes pick out the constellation and say, okay, this is looking like migraine. You can try to figure out sometimes if it's migraine by doing trial treatments with migraine therapeutics. So sometimes that's what happens. There's a great case of migraine that was written up in the New York Times, and I'm going to put it in the show notes, of someone who had absolutely no headache. And that the main part of this was recurrent bouts of extreme exhaustion and fatigue and a needing to just rest that would come and then go. And in between the periods, this person was absolutely fine. That ended up being treatable with migraine therapeutics for this patient. It took a long time for him to figure it out. But it really was an aha moment for me to say, yeah, like, the person with migraine is going to present in some very broad ways. So you need to really be a curious clinician to capture it sometimes. And other times it's going to look exactly, it's going to quack like a duck. Sometimes it's going to quack like a duck. Sometimes it's going to cluck like a chicken, even though it's a duck. So again, what the heck is going on? It's complicated. One of the misconceptions that has been out there is that it's just spasming of blood vessels in the brain or in the meninges that cover the brain. And that's not true. There is some blood vessel involvement, but it's not the whole story. There are a few contributing processes. I'm going to list three of them, but it's not an exhaustive list. There is an enormous amount of complexity to migraine, which is partly why we haven't figured it out yet and why we don't have clear, consistent, reliable interventions for folks with migraine because it's so complicated. And it you know, it's a neurological condition. It's also affected by the whole body. As you'll hear me say over and over again on this podcast, the brain resides in the body and it is not separate from it. There's continuous flow of information and chemicals and substances. And we can't really look at it in isolation and say that it functions independent of the body. Migraine is a great example of that. We can say MS is a great example of that. We could say depression is a great example of that. We could get into that. It's very juicy. It's really a whole body condition with a focus in neurological symptoms being the big problems. So here are a few of the contributing processes that we think are going on. And as I mentioned, not exhaustive this list. So one is this idea of cortical spreading depression, which I find really interesting. So what that is, is a self-propagating wave of nerve depolarization. So the nerves in the brain are in a wave, like if you think of being in a big soccer game and somebody decides to start the wave where they all stand up and then sit down in a series so that they get this wave 
that's sort of the same idea in that the the nerves in the brain, there's going to be an area where it starts. They say, okay, let's depolarize. And then that depolarization signals other cortical neurons to do the same thing. And you get the self-propagating wave across the brain. They call it a cortical spreading depression because it's a downregulation of these cells function. So they're lower in energy. And you can kind of see some of the symptoms, like people experience fatigue with this. And it might be partly because of this cortical spreading depression. And then another element of it is this activation of the trigeminal vascular system. I'm not going to get into the discrete anatomy and physiology of that. I really want to keep this at a fairly light level of discussion. But essentially what this ends up looking like is the activation of this system causes a release of neuropeptides that then cause a form of neurogenic inflammation. So there is an inflammatory element to migraine. And that really does explain some of what the therapeutics do, right? So we with migraine and folks out there who support people with migraine know that one of the goals of someone with migraine is to treat early and usually there's an anti-inflammatory involved, not always, but often. And so we know that that is actually treating this neurogenic inflammation also, they found that in looking at folks with migraine, the degree of neurogenic activation or neurogenic inflammation appears to be correlated with the duration and intensity of pain in migraine. And so this part of it might explain why we want to treat it early. Because if we can get that inflammation down, inflammation is also has a self-propagating quality. So if we can back it off early, so, you know, the take the ibuprofen, go to bed scenario, most people with migraine have discovered that they need to treat it early in order to prevent a bigger headache. And that's a common general phenomena for people with migraine. And this might be related to some of it. And then the last of these three processes that I'm going to highlight, and again, there's more going on, but these are three big ones, is sensitization. So sensitization is, in the world of the nervous system, is when the neurons become more responsive to painful and non-painful stimuli. So in a sense, they start to interpret non-painful stimulus as pain, and they start to interpret painful stimuli as more painful than it would otherwise see it as. This idea of sensitization or central sensitization plays a role not just in migraine. It plays a role in a lot of persistent pain problems that people experience. There's an error that can get set up almost like a, a communication error that gets set up where that person's pain signaling just ends up being confused. And so even pressure changes, like if you cough, could be interpreted as pain. Bending forward may cause a pain signal during migraine, even though it's not objectively a painful thing to do. And also this can underlie the experience of what's called allodynia. Allodynia is where light touch or non-painful stimuli is interpreted as pain. And if you've ever had a sunburn, you know what that feels like, where your skin, even light touch is very painful. That's allodynia. And that's really common again in migraine. We think that's part of the central sensitization that's happening for folks with migraine. So when we start talking about central sensitization, it's interesting because there's probably some avenues within central sensitization are opportunities for things like mindfulness, possibly exercise, 
to be therapeutic in this part of the migrantist phenomena. So some of the information around these pathophysiological processes that are going on gives us little hints at what are some therapeutics that are out there or why certain therapeutics work. And then there's, as I mentioned before, there's things I'm not mentioning for simplicity and clarity purposes that are related to some of the newer medications or some of the medications that get used that I can talk about another time, but that are also part of this. So I want to wrap up today with a little bit of myth-busting around migraine because I think there's a lot of misconception out there, and understandably so. We're not all headache experts. And even in the medical community, there's some confusion about migraine. Some of them I've already mentioned. So, of course, it's really important to know that you can have migraine without headache. And also that not every migraine comes with an aura. And in fact, 75% of migraine does not include aura as part of its distinct phases of development. Another thing that is often out there as a myth around migraine is that caffeine is a cause of migraines. We'll get into the specifics of caffeine, the ideal use of caffeine for people with migraine, but caffeine is not typically a cause of migraine headache and actually can be a treatment for migraine. And a lot of folks will report that where they realize that a cup of coffee can help them interrupt a migraine. One of the reasons why we focus on journal keeping for folks with migraine is that symptom tracking and journal keeping can help them start to understand what's a tool and caffeine might actually be a tool for that person. Another common myth is that you just have to live with migraines because sometimes that's what families do, right? Migraine has genetic underpinnings. It tends to run in families. So there is this tendency, maybe this is not a myth, but more of a tendency I see in the population that you just have to suck it up and deal with it. Uh, and you don't. You don't. There's lots of solutions out there. And finding a solution might involve layering in different things, like it might include changing your diet or it might include exercise or adjusting your sleep schedule or doing things around blood sugar regulation plus medication from time to time or can even include things like preventative medication or supplements. But there's lots of treatment options. It's hard to predict what will work for each person, but there's trial and error. And working with a professional or a headache specialist are great ways to start getting working on that. I would say that the biggest problem I see people having is that they get really focused on treating just the headache when it happens or treating the pain when it happens and lose the narrative that this is happening to them on the regular and maybe they need to do some lifestyle work or do some type of preventative care. And preventative care can have big benefits. There's evidence around preventative care that can reduce frequency quite significantly. We're going to talk about that in the next episode. And one thing I wanted to just tag back to just before I wrap up today was the idea of the prodrome or the knowledge the prodrome has food cravings. So this is a big piece of migraine research and curiosity in the world. This is a big piece of migraine research. Do we actually have foods that are definitively triggering a migraine headache or a migraine episode? Or alternatively, are people getting cravings for certain types of foods that we have interpreted to be migraine triggers but are actually part of the prodrome and part of the constellation of symptoms? 
So there's some questioning. Chocolate was thought to be a migraine trigger, and there's some questioning of that now, that maybe chocolate is actually a specific craving that humans with migraine get in their prodrome period, which might mean that sometimes food cravings are actually a heads up for you that you should get your preventative medication ready to go, or it could be a heads up for you that you're about to get the aura, so stop driving, right? So those are pieces of information that may not be what we thought they were before. And I'm going to get more into that because I think that's a really fascinating part of migraine, but we're going to talk about food triggers and some of the current science on that. And it's not to say that there may still be evidence to support that some foods are triggering for some people. So we're not, we're not ruling anything out here fully, but we are questioning it. There's also decent support around the idea that blood sugar vacillation, so high or low, and think, you know, if you're diabetic and you have migraines, this is really important for you, is that the vacillations in your blood sugar might be playing a role in triggering migraine. We also know that sleep is an important player. Stress is an important player. And exercise. We'll talk about exercise as a tool, not just intense exercise as a cause, because sometimes people experience migraine after really intense exercise. We're going to talk about it as a tool, not just a cause. So we're going to get into some more juicy details. Part two of this episode is going to occur after, and I think this is fortuitous, we're going to have that one drop after the next interview. So the next interview we have with The well Nurtured Brain is with Dr. Richard McAmoyle, and he's a pain expert. He's a chiropractor who has dedicated his career to understanding persistent pain and being able to converse with patients and teach other clinicians and mentor other clinicians on how to manage persistent pain. And we talk a little bit in that interview about sensitization. So you'll get a little piece of pain info there that will help with understanding part two of, and maybe part one of the migraine series here we're working on. Once again, as always, I want to thank you for coming. Thanks for listening all the way through. I hope this was a value for you. And certainly, if you know someone out there with migraine, share this episode and let them know there is a very helpful one coming up in about four weeks to follow this one. We're also really interested in finding out what do you want to hear? What are you curious about? What are the problems with brain health that you want us to explore and demystify? You can reach us at thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com. That's thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com. Really want to provide valuable information to the regular listeners, so please reach out and let us know. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're enjoying this. And I will be back in two weeks with an interview with Dr. Richard McAmoyle and in two more weeks with the second half of the migraine episode. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget, be kind to your mind. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening. 